Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. It seems the debate in Washington about the American technology sector has shifted in recent years. It wasn't so long ago that it was, tech is leading America into the future. Then it became, hey, tech has a downside too. Then it became, what has tech done for us lately? And now I think it's, what has tech done for us since Apollo 11? Or, as investor Peter Thiel recently wrote, look up from your phone and compare our time to 1969. The stagnation is evident. But my guest today, Hal Varian, is much more optimistic about the past few decades' worth of innovation, and I'm delighted to explore why. Hal is the chief economist at Google. He is also an emeritus professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he was the founding dean of the School of Information. Hal, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. It's great being here. Has there been a real lack of tech progress since the 1960s? Well, I think uh, it's a little tough to answer that question because there have been a myriad of improvements in health, there have been a myriad of improvements in uh, artificial intelligence. The kind of uh, vision recognition we had now was a dream 10 years ago, and now it's just commonplace. So there have been a lot of technological advances uh, that have occurred in that period. Now, the it, official productivity numbers not zero, but they were slower. They were, there, was, there was that now famous sort of downshift in the 70s, and we had a little pop-up there in the late 90s, early 2000s, and now we sort of settled back into a lower rate. Right, but as we know, there are some measurement issues there. My favorite example is uh, photography. We're talking about vision. Back in uh, 2000, there were 80 billion photos taken in the world. And fast forward 15 years, and what you see is 1.6 trillion photos taken in the world. And those photos uh, that were done on film, they were 50 cents apiece, something like that. Uh, well, now they're effectively zero. So we've seen this tremendous ex uh, advances there, and it doesn't really show up anywhere in, uh, in GDP. Does it, should <clears throat> I care that the advances have been, a lot of the advances in recent decades seem to have been in information technology? I mean, I mentioned Peter Thiel, and I, a question, he does the famous sort of, flying cars versus Twitter example, that we've had these advances in bits but not atoms. Mm -hmm. does, does that mean something has gone wrong with the economy, that we've seen these advances in information technology but not, quote, unquote, in the real world or physical world? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say uh, it's typically the case that you'll see some technology that comes along and then there are a few decades involved in exploiting that technology, using how it works, deploying it. Think, for example, in 1900, the automobile uh, came on the scene, and during a very short period of time, really just a few years, you saw this huge transformation from horses and buggies to automobiles. And let me cite my grandfather. He told me, I was born when people got around by a horse and buggy, and I lived to see men walk on the moon. And that's pretty amazing. In 70 years, you went from horse and buggy to walking the moon. So the 20th century is a tough act to follow. It happens that our big technology of the day is actually in digital computing and uh, communications technology, which have completely changed the world in terms of information dissemination and uh, knowledge, data, 
can flow around the world in seconds, which was weeks and months back in the turn of the century. I think, I mean, the, the argument is, if I went back to 1970, I would not notice stunning change in my life. But if I was in 1970, I went back to 1920, it would, it would seem, the differences would seem pretty pretty sharp. Now, I'm not sure I believe that argument because yeah. I, 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 I'm off to remember the 70s and I don't want to go back to the 70s. And I don't want to <laughs> go back to my 1200 foot square house or my TV with three channels right. or the car that wasn't so good. Well, back in the 70s, you may have read that comic strip on Dick Tracy who had this wireless communication that he was able to do. And that was science fiction. But now, of course, it's reality. So we would recognize, I think, a person who was brought forward from 1970 to now would uh, recognize that a lot of things were similar to what was available in that period, but I think they'd be just flabbergasted by what's happened on the, on the computing side. Even, even though there's no flying cars? Yeah, well, there are some flying cars. Uh, they're work, just uh, prototypes at this point, yeah. Uh, but, and I think sort of in that criticism is the... Uh, is the idea not just that things don't sort of seem as advanced as maybe people in 1970 might have uh, predicted, but that the kind of advances we've seen just sort of aren't important. Is what Google does, are you doing something economically important? And how, and how, would, how do we know other than, other, other than the fact it's a very big, successful company? Yeah. So, so I, you might say that in itself would be evidence that you're doing something. Yes, different. and I think I think that would be the uh, space that would be the most surprising to a to a person from uh, 1970 is you can go talk to this computer. The computer answers you like a human. Well, we saw that on TV in Star Trek, but that you had access to this incredible amount of information just at your fingertips, which which is. You've probably been to a library, maybe not recently, but at some time in your life. And nowadays, uh, there's just this huge amount of, of content that's available to anybody who, uh, who seeks it for free, which would, which would really be a big surprise. But do you think that's an economically significant change? Because, again, people will say, great, you don't have to go to the card catalog anymore. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to you know, look for books in a library. It's right there at your fingertips. But... What is it all? What does it all meant that you know the iPhone? Great, we can watch YouTube videos. Maybe maybe we can learn something from them. But these aren't just not aren't big significant change. They're not the combustion engine. They're not electrification. So actually, let me let me tell you an experiment we did, where we took a list of questions. These are questions that were asked of Google, and there were questions that were asked of reference librarians. And we got two teams of students, and the students were tasked with answering these questions. One team got to use the library and the other team got to use Google. So it took about 22 minutes per question for the library people and it took about seven minutes per question for the Google people. So they were saving roughly 15 minutes per correction. And they were already in the library. They didn't have to get in the car and drive down there and all this uh, sort of stuff. So you add that time up you add up that savings across the entire U.S., or maybe if you want to do it globally, there's a huge amount of time saved by doing that. And a similar example is navigating in a strange town. Well, that was always a little scary, I would say. It was difficult. You had these paper things called maps, and you opened it up and plotted out a route and got lost a few times. And then you had to figure out how to fold up the map again. That was really pretty tough in itself. And now we think nothing of it. You know, to get from one point to another point, we just ask Google Maps and off you go. 
So these things have made life far, far more convenient and dramatically lowered the cost of dealing with information. Our, our previous uh, guest in here was Eric Brynjolfsson oh. uh, from MIT. And uh, two, two things I asked him, and I, I sort of wanted to get your take. One, and you sort of alluded to it earlier, that perhaps, you know, the future is here, but it's just not evenly distributed. The future is here at Google and Apple and Microsoft, these companies which have these new technologies, and they're using them very well, and they're just, they just haven't made their way out to the rest of the private sector. It's hard. You have to have the expertise. And so people say, like, you know, where are these advances? AI, we've been hearing AI for several years. It doesn't seem to be changing our lives. And it's, well, maybe, you know, be patient. Is the, mm-hmm. Should we be patient? Yeah, I think we're going to see some major advances in AI. We've already seen some phenomenal ones, as I mentioned earlier. But in a way, it will be that the AI is behaving much more like a human. And we have humans who behave like humans. So we are initially surprised that we're talking to a machine and it's handling all of these uh, tasks that I ask of it. But then later on, we become kind of complacent. And we say, well, yeah, of of course. You mean you don't talk to your refrigerator? (laughs) Any of these things? So I I think now... That would be what the 1970 visitor would find so fantastic. Do you think we're sort of in sort of that pause where people are, where the technology has advanced, but we're really non-leading edge companies, let's put it that way, have to figure out what to do with this. They, They know it's out there, they just don't know, they just can't make good use of it yet. Right, and I think we'll see this technology become commoditized. So here's an example. Uh, all of the McDonald's in the U.S. are putting in kiosks now to order. So you walk up to the kiosk, maybe you talk to it, maybe you just punch it into the to the machine, and then that's conveyed back to the uh, uh, kitchen, and they cook your meal and deliver it in a few uh, minutes. So fast food, we had fast food around for a long time, even back in the 70s. But uh, what's amazing about this is you've got this machine that you're dealing with rather than a person. Same tasks, because we're automating so many services now, uh, and we'd kind of had versions of those services. They were just much more expensive than uh, they've become now. Um, are you all concerned about, you know, we've, we've heard sort of the phrase, uh, you know, tech lash, and say yeah. it's the idea that, you know that uh, people now they don't like the, they don't they don't like tech companies anymore. They're very worried about privacy issues. They're worried about sort of competition issues. They're worried about innovation issues. And there's and and I do want to touch touch on that. But there's also like another kind of tech lash, which is that perhaps people will be so worried about automation and losing jobs. Uh, you know, Andrew Yang did very well in the Democratic primaries. Uh, you know, ma- making the argument that there's going to be riots in the streets from truck drivers who are going to be automated away. And then I, then I noticed that, that in San Francisco, which you think would be the, you know, they would embrace, you know, creative destruction and disruption, that they wanted to create this, an office of emerging technology to sort of license entrepreneurs. Are you at all concerned about sort of a tech lash, more of a neo-Luddite kind of tech lash where, where robot taxes or, or, or they can manifest itself in some other way where people sort of just push back on change? Well, I think that if you look at the U.S. situation, then uh, I believe that's unlikely to occur because the tech companies in Silicon Valley— and, Bill Gates was talking about a robot tax. Yes, I know I know he was. 
Uh, <laughs> and and still is. I I, I, I want to separate out these two issues. Yeah. One is the tech lash, and the second is this uh, issue about future of work. Mm-hmm. So on the tech lash, when you look at the surveys, basically ordinary people have a very high opinion of tech. If you look at the Pew surveys, for example, or uh, other uh, instances of this, you see that the three most trusted institutions in America, for example, are the U.S. military, Amazon, and Google. So people have a, have a positive experience of, of tech currently. In Europe, not so much because they aren't the local heroes the way we are here. They're seeing this as this, these large, giant companies that are foreigners and so on, and so they've got more... Uh, of uh, concern there, but the, at the same time, they have this worry that why haven't we been able to innovate in this area? And there are various reasons that you might put forth on that. And then if you look at Asia, well, Asia, they're gung ho on right. technology and have been that way for decades. So generally, I'm, I'm not all that worried about the uh, tech lash. But I want to come back to the second part of the question, the issue about jobs, because I've been looking into this uh, for the last couple of years. There's two effects going on here. One is the impact on the demand curve from technological advances in automation. But there's also been a big shift in the supply curve of labor. And the reason for that is just plain old demographics. Because realistically speaking, there's only one social science that can make adequate predictions about what the world's going to look like in 20 years, and that's demography. Okay? So if you look at the U.S., well, we had the baby boom, and then we get the baby boomers are all retiring now, so we're seeing a big impact on the uh, labor market just from that. And all those baby boomers that are retiring, they expect to continue consuming. So somebody has to be producing the goods that they want to consume. And one of those goods, of course, is health care that we just talked about, which is hugely expensive here. So becoming more productive in providing health, providing sort of day-to-day services, uh, all of these things, uh, that's going to be quite important. And we're going to have to do it with fewer people, fewer workers. Okay, so what we're seeing now with this low unemployment rate and labor shortages in many areas, uh, that's not just cyclical. Part of it is macroeconomics is a cyclical phenomenon, but but the uh, major part is that's really structural. In the next 30 years, we're going to see tight labor markets, okay, unless there's really phenomenal advances in terms of labor-saving devices. And if there is, nobody put a five-day week in... That was that's not written in stone. You could have four day working week if you wanted. Well, I mean, I mean, put aside the you know robots take all the jobs. You don't expect, as technology advances, that we will have somewhat, maybe a somewhat higher level of unemployment, even if you know plenty of people are still working. You it sounds like you don't expect that to happen. Right. If by unemployment you mean involuntary. Uh, reduction in labor. Yeah, I think we're going to see... Love to have a job, but... I think we're going to see that at a low level for several years. Now there'll be recessions and so on. I'm not denying that. But but if you think about the 20th century, two great big shocks. One was the baby boomers, and the other was women entering the labor market. Okay? So for during that period of time, you saw lots of workers... It wasn't hard to find a worker in general. It was a fairly loose market. There were people available, and it was a time of prosperity for a good chunk of it. 
Uh, and so now we're at the other side. The women's participation in the labor market is pretty much maxed out. That's not going to happen again. And the baby boomers are all withdrawing from the labor market. Okay. And so what happened after the baby boom? It was the baby dearth. Okay. <laughs> and that's what we're seeing now. So right now, the labor force of the U.S. would be contracting if it weren't for, for legal immigration. So, um, so sort of the, uh, the difference, and uh, Daron Asimolu has written about this, that we have some kinds of uh, you know, tech change, which is automation, it's labor replacing, and then you have the other kinds, which is sort of you know, labor enhancing, either it creates new demand or it creates you know, new jobs and service. And there's, like this, and there's this tension, we need both, mm-hmm. but there's this tension, and perhaps we've had too much of the, the labor replacing kinds of uh, automation going forward. Uh, or in, of, of late. So going forward, do you think it's more sort of labor replacing then or sort of labor demand creating and, and labor enhancing and job creating kinds of technological progress? Right. So, so I talk uh, a bit about cognitive assistance or manual assistance. So you look at the traditional industrial revolution, things that were humans were doing with their own muscle power or maybe augmented by a horse, then were replaced by mechanical devices and you really enhanced the, the manual side of labor, moving things around and building things and even down to the point of, of washing dishes and washing clothes. I mean, washing was a phenomenally unpleasant, long, detailed task that people had to do, mostly women, and the automation uh, that occurred in the home in the 19, late 1900s, and, sorry, the late 1800s and beginning 1900s, that freed up a lot of people from this tedious, unpleasant work. And later, they were able to move into the uh, labor force, the paid labor force outside the, the home. So that was a big phenomenon in terms of, of uh, productivity just from that effect alone. But as I said, Again, it's running the other direction now where we have people leaving the labor force and we aren't seeing any kind of boost from additional participation. But I do think that technology can enhance not just the manual side of labor, but also the cognitive side. So when I was a kid, maybe when you were a kid, we had to take this lesson on how to compute square roots by hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have to do that anymore, right? I mean, the Computers have taken over square roots. What next, right? So uh, the uh, issue there is when you have a mismatch between the skills needed for the job and the skills provided by the workforce, the skills available to the workforce, there's two ways to solve that. You can either bring the person up to the necessary level of skill or you can reduce the job down to the level of skill that's appropriate given the mechanization. So, again, when I was a kid and had a summer job at an ice cream store, I had to make change. Well, making change, (laughs) nobody does that by hand anymore, at least in the developed world. And if you think about... It gives people anxiety to have to do that by hand. It does. It does. It does. If you look at things, if you went to get a job in, uh, let's say, a kennel or veterinary hospital then uh, you'd need to learn to identify different breeds of dogs. You know, what a nice you know, Dachshund you have or what a nice Fox Terrier that is and so on. Well, that requires some training and some practice, but nowadays a computer can do that for you. A computer can identify plants for you. A computer can do all these different things. There were skills that previously somebody had to invest time in learning. Think about 
you know, London cabbie who just spent a year learning how to navigate right. a year, two years navigating in London. Well, now anybody can do that. And that's, of course, had a huge impact on, on productivity. Let me uh, run two theories by, and, and which do you find more compelling? The American tech sector is fantastic for innovation. They're constantly trying to make their products better, and they're spending tens of billions every year on research development. Tech sector, great for innovation. Versus the tech sector is terrible for innovation. They, they you know, they, Companies are scared to compete with them, so they, they don't. They, so they don't want to. They don't want to get involved in the kind of sectors that, that that the most powerful tech companies are involved in. And perhaps they do. Perhaps they are in those sectors, and then they get bought up, and they never get a chance to grow big. So we never see what they can really be if they were independent. They are killing innovation in this country. There's kill zones of innovation. So is it? Is there a kill? Is it creating? Is big tech creating a kill zone? Or are they a, a font of innovation? Which of those? Which of those is true? Because I'm confused. It's a kill zone or a thrill zone. <laughs> it's huh? a kill zone or a thrill zone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you made that up, but that's excellent. That's excellent. All right. Well, of course, I like the first story uh, better. I think it's more accurate. Why is and, it more accurate? And let, well, let me spout a few statistics okay. here. So, in 2018, there were 631 startups who are working in the area of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Okay, now the funny thing about this is everybody's working in that area. Google is investing billions, Microsoft, uh, Amazon. Countries have policies for investing more in AI and ML. So if these 631 new startups were worried, were scared because of the competition that's out there, there wouldn't be 631 of them. And believe me, in five years, there's not going to be 631 IPOs from these guys either. Why is that? Well, because nowadays, six times, there are six times as many uh, acquisitions as IPOs. So these companies, for the most part, if they can master and produce a product that develops a particular skill that's valuable to other companies, they will most likely be acquired. And if you go look at Silicon Valley uh, Bank, they run a survey of startups, and 50% of them say they'll likely exit from our uh, period of financing. Uh, is in fact uh, via acquisition, and only 18% say IPOs. And by the way, even with IPOs, if you look at an IPO for for companies that are uh, have less than $75 million worth of uh, funding, half of those disappear within five years of the IPO, either by acquisition or by going out of business or something else. So it's an intensely competitive world out there. But uh, acquisition is really a big plus because in most cases, these companies that are acquiring them are not killing them off, but in fact, they're utilizing their skills to make better products. I think when people think about the largest technology companies, they, they, like one word sort of comes into you know, their mind. Google, okay, that's search. Okay. Amazon, well, that's, you know, that, you know, that's retail. Uh, Apple, uh, well, you know they make they, they they make great devices. Facebook, that's that's social media. Uh, Microsoft, uh, they make they make the systems for my soft for my computer. Uh, but I also heard they're doing this cloud cloud thing. Do we really don't understand what they do anymore? Um, to what extent 
do, are all these companies actually sort of competing in all these other things that we just don't think of because we usually just think of them as doing sort of this one big thing? Right. So that is, that is an excellent list, and I have a table with exactly that <laughs> list in it, and the columns are the companies, and the rows are the different areas in which they're competing. And if you look at things like mobile devices, you've got uh, Google, of course, with its, uh, with its uh, Android brand. You've got Apple competing against that. You look at operating systems. We've got the Android operating system. We've got iPhone operating system. We've got Windows. You've got all of those companies competing against each other. Uh, with respect to autonomous vehicles, you have a similar range of competitors, in that case mostly automobile companies, but, but uh, a number of software companies as, as well. And so you're seeing uh, very substantial amounts of competition. In fact, if you imagine a world where the only thing that Amazon did is sell stuff online, and the only thing that Google did was search, and the only thing that uh, Microsoft did was productivity applications, that would be completely different than what we see now, that kind of siloed world, because now we see a world where there's competition across all those uh, dimensions. I think there's a lot of concern right now that America may be on the technological frontier, but you know, China, China's catching up. Is that a legitimate concern, and what, what should policymakers do about that concern? Yeah. So, absolutely, China is investing very heavily in those areas for two reasons. One is the reason I mentioned earlier is that they're confronting labor shortages and have to have robotic uh, and AI uh, enhancements. Uh, it's necessary to, the, to their uh, future prosperity, so that seems quite clear. But also, there's a rivalry. I mean, you've got the two biggest powers on Earth here. And they're uh, engaged in rivalry, and the domain in which that's uh, most critical is in this area of technology. So I think we're, we we should be worried about that as a, a country. I don't think it should keep us up at night, but how we want they, to make how, sure. How can they be catching up to? It? They, you know, they don't have our free enterprise system. Yeah. They, they, they had all these. I mean, I thought I thought that. You know, subsidies and you know, you know, uh, government government officials, you know, planning which sectors are going to be the favorite sectors. That that I thought that didn't I thought that didn't work. I thought, but does it now work? I mean, I think no. a lot of people are wondering, like, hey, they they figured out a news that we thought we had the secret sauce. They figure out a different secret sauce. Yeah. So so it's a very good uh, question, and I I will say one of the advantages that China has is leapfrogging. They didn't really go through investing in this huge. Uh, uh, terrestrial uh, communication system, they were able to go directly to wireless and now they're moving directly into, into 5G. And the uh, same thing, they didn't have to go through this, this, all this investment that we put into, say, semiconductor manufacturing uh, to become a world leader in that area, but they were able to acquire... That should maybe get you near the frontier, to the frontier, but that, yeah. should that really allow you to keep pushing the frontier? Or have they figured a different well, way to push that frontier forward? Let's take an example I mentioned earlier, which was, gee, we have kiosks in McDonald's. And uh, that's fine. That's good. But in China, that's been around for five or six years. Nobody's using cash in China because they were able to develop a payment system from scratch. So they don't have to go through this uh, rather cumbersome, cumbersome system that we've gone through. So China has has done pretty well on the free enterprise front, and a lot of the 
you know, basic industries that are still under state control are real laggards, not leaders. So it isn't that the central planning was a big success. It was that despite the central planning, right. they were able to unleash these dynamic forces in their economy that made a big difference. And, and you know what started all is when they freed up agriculture. So when they saw the huge benefits uh, that, that accrued to a free market in agricultural products, and then they moved on from there. Now, Google spends a lot on R&D. Would you like to see Washington spend more on R&D? Would you like to see Washington spend differently on R&D? Have you given that any thought? Well, I've, I've seen this uh, nice uh, plot of looking at how much, what the division was between private expenditure and public expenditure on R&D back in 1950 mm -hmm. and what it looks like now. And it's fallen in half because the, the private sector is doing the majority of the R&D now, while the uh, public s sector has really cut back uh, significantly. So I think that's a problem because when we look at a lot of innovations, just, just to mention three of them, one is the internet itself that came out of a government project, a research project. The digital library program, which I participated in, spun off three search engines, Google, Inc.to.me, and Lycos and then uh, autonomous vehicles, which was uh, also funded at universities over a decade-long period. This was long-term funding, and those are a reality now, and uh, we will see that dramatically changing uh, the way that we move people and goods around in the, in the near future. So the government funded that research was the early stage, and then they had the wisdom to be able to step back and let the private sector uh, take over when the technology was sufficiently mature. Um, I just want to finish up with, uh, uh, I think I may have mentioned some, uh, maybe one or two other podcasts. So one, of my, one of my favorite studies that I've uh, read recently was one by uh, Ray Fair over at Yale, and he looked at you know, the explosion of the U.S. budget deficit starting, um, you know, in the 70s and the decline in infrastructure spending, and maybe you could even say the decline uh, in, uh, you know, science investment. And you look at all that, and, he, and what he concluded was that something happened to America back in the, maybe the early 70s, and we became sort of a less future-oriented society. And some people would say, well, if you look at the fact we're not doing anything about climate change, that would seem to back that up. And it may not seem like that in Silicon Valley, where everyone seems very future-oriented. But do you think that we're not as future-oriented as we were 50 years ago, or perhaps not as future-oriented as we need to be today? Well, I will say another example of what you're describing is science fiction. So when I was a kid, I loved science fiction. I read all the science fiction books. They were all kind of utopian in their vision about what would happen. Well, now they're all dystopian. And the reading a science fiction book has become kind of depressing because they, they're future-oriented, but they're looking at a, a negative future. You don't want to go there. Future. I don't want to <laughs> go there, no. And I don't quite know the answer of why this has happened, but one possible component is this demography issue that I mentioned before. Uh, as people age, they become somewhat more pessimistic and they have uh, more risk averse and so on and so they don't have quite the um, energy that you have in a in a in a more youthful time and if you look at the world I talked about the developing countries who are all aging rapidly but where are the two places that are getting younger 
There's India and Africa, basically. So you could fast forward 20 years from now and you might see a world where you've got a kind of tired, developed world and a very energetic, uh, developing world. Now, there's lots of possibilities for gains from trade when you've got that structure. And that's the optimistic view, but you also could have competition for resources, which is a pessimistic view. Well, we'll end on the optimistic view. I'm on the optimistic <laughs> side, yeah. My guest today has been Hal Varian. Hal, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Okay. Thank you.